Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we have an exciting show for you today. I'm excited to have with me here Dr. Dheeraj Gaswami, who is an assistant professor of anesthesia and critical care medicine. He is a pediatric cardiothoracic anesthesiologist. He had quite the root of training to get there. I'm going to let him tell you about that, but he's going to talk to us about pediatric cardiothoracic anesthesia. So we're going to do an overview of a kind of basic intro to that subspecialty, which is a fascinating one. I always remember when I was a resident and I had a day in the OR doing just a regular case, not a cardiac case, with Dr. Anil D'Souza, who was at UCSF at the time. Really great guy. And I remember him telling me that there's just nothing more fascinating than pediatric cardiothoracic anesthesia. And so I think this will be really interesting for folks to hear a little bit about what it is. So Dheeraj, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Jed. I definitely agree with your uh, Dr. D'Souza. It's uh, one of the best things that uh, that I do. I I really really enjoy it. Uh, so my training background is a little unique. Yeah, tell uh, us how did you get where you are. So you know, I if you were to tell me that this was a path I was going to go on ten years ago, I would never have believed it. Or fifteen years ago now, uh, where I started in pediatrics uh, in pediatric residency. And then uh, I had an experience during pediatric residency where I did some anesthesia time and really enjoyed it. And when I decided I wanted to do my uh, ICU fellowship here at Hopkins, there were a number of people that did dual training. And what I mean by dual training is that they uh, worked in the operating room as, as an anesthesiologist as well as the ICU. And I really felt like that was a path for me. So then I ended up uh, completing a PICU fellowship, uh, starting anesthesia residency, then uh, went and did Peds Anesthesia Fellowship uh, and my Pediatric Cardiac Anesthesia Fellowship and Pediatric Cardiac Critical Fellowship at uh, Texas Children's uh, in Houston. And then I returned here uh, after double-digit years of training uh, and uh, uh, have been back now for a few years. That's great. And so uh, lots of training. Now let me ask you, uh, is all of that necessary for someone who wants to do pediatric cardiothoracic anesthesia, or can you do it with a piece of that, but not the whole thing? Uh, Not at all necessary. Uh, If uh, there are a number of different uh, options that one can go into to do pediatric cardiac anesthesia. You know, the history there is very interesting in that uh, the focus, uh, you know, back when uh, the specialty was anew was primarily adult surgeons doing and uh, working on pediatric patients and therefore adult anesthesiologists working and caring for pediatric patients. That kind of transitioned when we had the adult surgeons focusing on having a cardiothoracic fellowship all these cases then being done primarily at children's hospitals, and then a relative transition to their care from adult-based specialties to pediatric-based specialties. There are some still adult pathways where people do uh, adult uh, uh, cardiac anesthesia and then practice uh, in some form some pediatric cardiac cases, but as a whole, the pathway that most people arrive to is doing anesthesia residency, doing a pediatric anesthesia fellowship, and almost at every major institution now, uh, there has to be some extra time. Uh, up to six, some some do six months, up to a year of pediatric cardiac anesthesia fellowship time. Great. And is that a? It's not an ACGME fellowship, right? The additional. the cardiac time. So that's kind of like an apprenticeship model almost. Do you just spend a lot of time working with pediatric cardiac anesthesiologists? It is not, you know, it's not ACGME accredited, but there are relatively established rules. I shouldn't say rules. There are, there is literature out there that states the cases that you should do, the Mm -hmm. experiences that you you should have. uh, And they, and people that have done this for years feel that that should be the requirements for you to uh, become part of that group, right. but it is not at all ACGME regulated. Okay, great. So if you want to both take care of these kids in the operating room and then follow them and take care of them in the PICU uh, on a, a cardiac PICU team, you would need to do what you did, right? You have to have the PICU fellowship. You have to have the uh, anesthesia cardiac piece. But um, if you just want to practice pediatric cardiothoracic anesthesia in the operating room, you don't need the PICU and the PEDS part. You do not, you do not need that extra time at all. 
Okay, great. So a lot of different options out there. You've certainly um, completed the full gamut, uh, and you, I know, enjoy what you do on both ends. You do still work in the PICU, right? Yeah, I, you know, my clinical time is probably split if you were to look purely in kind of FTE percentage, uh, probably a, a third and two-thirds, uh, with the third being in the PICU or ICU, CVICU, mm-hmm. and uh, two-thirds being in the cardiac OR of some sort. Great. So let's talk about um, the common, most common procedures that you do. So when you think about pediatric cardiothoracic anesthesia, you know, what are the main things that encompass that it encompasses? What makes it different than just pediatric anesthesia? Obviously, it's because we're operating on the kids' hearts, but what do you think of as the most common things that you do uh, on an everyday basis? Well, you know, generally all pediatric cardiac surgery are going to be done on children with congenital diseases. Uh, and I, I say that in general, that's just the majority of cases by far are going to be patients that have some sort of congenital lesion. The most common of these are relatively benign cases, and then, you know, the ASDs, the VSDs that will uh, sometimes close on their own, uh, sometimes need repair. Uh, and they are, as I said, the most benign in that uh, they're relatively short procedures. Uh, they have relatively low morbidity and certainly almost zero mortality. Uh, and so they're kind of our bread and butter easy cases that we see um, consistently that when they're on our schedule, we kind of breathe easy mm-hmm. and uh, get done uh, without too many issues. And are these getting done because the kid is symptomatic or are parents given the option, you know, hey, this might close on its own, but if you want to just go ahead, we'll fix it? Or how, how do they arrive in the operating room? Well, you know, the good thing is that we have enough data now that can kind of tell us which ones are going to close and which ones aren't going to close and at what time they're going to close. So generally for those basic ones, there are some that are likely to close based on where they're located and what type of lesion they are. And there's others that no matter how small they are, they are not going to close based on um, how they were formed. Gotcha. All right. And is this, uh, are these evaluated with echo, with uh, MRI? How do they? Generally all all echo findings. And do you got do you do TEEI? So let's back up. Mm-hmm. Adult cardiothoracic anesthesia is pretty much synonymous with transesophageal mm-hmm. echo. Unless there's a contraindication, every case is going to have an echo. Is that true in your world too? Generally, that is true. There are some neonatal cases where the patient is actually too small to mm-hmm. get a TEE. And there are some cases where the benefit uh, is just not there, uh, meaning that you can evaluate just visual, visual visually uh, whether things are going as you want it or not. And then if they're not going as you want, you can do an epicardial echo, which would be uh, one that's sterile that's actually sitting on top of the heart, okay. uh, which you can evaluate. Now, uh, TE is a little variable in the pediatric cases, and I say that because these are anatomically, as we discussed, incorrect hearts. Right. And therefore, from a pediatric perspective, to be pediatric TEE certified for congenital heart disease, you have to be a cardiologist okay, uh, and a pediatric cardiologist. However, uh, the majority of us are at least somewhat comfortable and basic TEE certified, or many of us, I should say. Many of the cardiac anesthesiologists mm-hmm. are basic TEE certified or have at least some uh, um, I wouldn't say expertise, but some skills sure. uh, with the TEE uh, from that perspective. But we are not the ones like in adult uh, cardiac anesthesia that are actually billing for the TEE itself. Sure. So you are you have the skills to be able to use it. You can use it to help you guide your anesthetic during the surgery, but you're not uh, doing the pre or post op uh, echo that's then getting billed to the patient. Not the bill. Certainly not the bill. And in terms of if you know they're a little late and it's a simple case that I can I can you know I can show them and we can move forward uh, with them doing you know with the pediatric cardiac group doing uh, cardiology group I should say right, right. doing the actual billing and uh, the report for the echo right uh, after that right. Yeah. But most of your cases, you're putting an echo in. Yeah, most of the cases, we're putting the echo in for evaluation. This kind of goes back to, you know, the cases that are most common. Like I said, they are, you know, all anatomically, you know, variable cases. And they can, you know, the the majority of our cases are going to be in uh, small children. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly, uh, a lot of neonatal cases then 
beget later cases, meaning that right. once you've done one repair, uh, oftentimes these children will need subsequent repairs, uh, especially when you are discussing a patient that needs a single ventricle route, which we can discuss um, at some time. Uh, they, they, but the majority of those cases are, are done um, uh, as, as children. Right. Yeah. And so can you give me an approximate, I mean, what percentage would you say of your patients are under a year versus older? Uh, so under a year, I think we've evaluated this uh, that are ch- taller or below, about 60%, I think, are, okay. are one or less. So majority, majority, I believe, are one or less. Okay. Certainly majority are, are by far majority are three or less. And what about, um, we're seeing more and more, Adults who living to be adults who have congenital or were born with congenital heart disease, do you and your group do the anesthetics for those patients when they come back as a twenty five or thirty year old? So it it depends on on where you are uh, and the expertise of the institution. So uh, you know the one the one of the benefits at being at Hopkins is it's integrated in that the adult and pediatric size are are are. Uh, it's very easy to move back and forth in between them. So we don't necessarily need to do those cases because we have adult colleagues that are very comfortable doing uh, adult congenital. Mm-hmm. At other institutions, uh, depending on what the case, what cases they are, the peds cardiac uh, group will do the cases. And whether it's bypass or whether they're coming because they're very complicated congenital disease and they're coming for a non-cardiac surgery, the uh, pediatric folks will will do those uh, cases all the time. Gotcha. And I would say in general, the, uh, the pediatric, majority of adult congenital heart disease nowadays, because once again, we, we refer kind of back to what we were saying before, are done by pediatric cardiac surgeons. Their locations are primarily at pediatric-focused institutions. Therefore, they're going to be done by pediatric anesthesiologists. Not, not at all places, but at, at most. Right. Okay. So you said the majority or the, the you know, most common cases are the benign ASDs and VSDs. Let's move into a little bit more of the kind of complicated cases that you might see. Not that these can't be complicated, but, you know, what, what are some of the different physiologies that you see in your patients that we're just not going to see in your typical adult, even adult cardiac case? And uh, what do some of those cases look like? So... When we talk about things, uh, I generally look at uh, the heart flow in series and in parallel. And so for a typical person, me, you, a typical child, they are in series, meaning that blood is flowing from A to B to C to D and cannot flow any other way. Right. In a congenital patient or many congenital patients, uh, their blood flow is in parallel, meaning that uh, it has a choice of going either A or to B. And so oftentimes we have to figure out whether we want it to go to B, uh, whether we want it to go to A, and then how to alter the physiology to make blood flow in one direction or the other. Right. Okay. So that's really interesting. And I want to revisit that. Is there? Can we talk about some lesions as being hypoxic lesions and others as not? Yeah, yeah, I think you know we 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 talk about children with cyanotic heart disease and acyanotic heart disease. Okay. And as a whole, if you have cyanotic heart disease, it does mean that you have some sort of uh intracardiac shunting occurring. And all that means is that there is uh blood that is having to decide between A and B at times and because of that some blood is going backwards, some of that, not, I shouldn't say backwards, but some blood is going uh, against our typical perspective of, sure. of blood flow and therefore mixing is occurring, meaning deoxygenated blood is coming together with oxygenated blood and then uh, being ejected out of the body. So Great. So it might be helpful to think about, maybe let's walk through one example of this and so we can get some specifics as to what these A's and B's are and everything. So you know, maybe um, you tell me, but I think we could talk about maybe a kid who's born with hypoplastic left ventricle. Yeah. So what does that mean, and when, what, is, what does their physiology look like, and then what do we do about it? So uh, hypoplastic left heart is, is, uh, is a syndrome, and what I mean by that is that there's varying degrees of 
and, and areas that are affected, but simply it just means that you have a very small left-sided structure, and that can be at the level of the mitral valve, the aortic valve, the left ventricle, the aorta itself, but usually some sort of combination of all of the above. Uh, now, because of that, uh, when they are born, uh, they have essentially an inability to get systemic blood flow. Which is incompatible with life, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So if something were not done in a relatively short period of time, and uh, you know that, that short period of time can be variable, in a relatively short period of time, they would die. Right. Uh, and the way that they live for that short period of time is that in utero, we all have uh, a PDA, uh, and that is and that's a, a patent ductus patent arteriosus, arteriosus mm-hmm. and that is uh, allowing blood flow in utero to bypass the lungs because you haven't taken a breath yet and right. go out to the rest of the body. And that's a connection. Let me try to remember here, but I believe that's from the pulmonary artery to the aorta. Is that right? Uh, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, what in utero? I just want to make sure I've, I've got this in my head here. So, the right heart is pumping blood into the pulmonary artery just like it it always does. Um, But we don't want all that blood to go to the lungs because the lungs have super high resistance because they haven't opened yet. There's no air in them. And so we want a conduit. So that blood, instead of going to the lungs all the way through the pulmonary artery, it goes through the ductus arteriosus over to the aorta and then out to the rest of the body. Exactly. Okay. So that's there for everybody. Then you're born and it's supposed to close. It's supposed to close. Now, obviously, if you don't have any ability to get blood out, out to your aorta, and that closes, you're going to die. So it just depends on what. Now, in this case, for a hypoplastic patient, we use prostaglandins to keep that duct open. We allow blood flow to be ejected into the lungs. And then, once again, physics-related, resistance-related, depending on what has higher resistance, the blood will flow in one direction or the other. Right. So So this is a patient who needs that blood. So all their blood is going to get pumped by their right ventricle out into their pulmonary artery because yes. they've got no left ventricle. Exactly. So if it all goes there and it all goes to the lungs and then comes right back to the right atrium, we're just got, we've just got a circle with nothing going to the body. So the, the keeping the ductus arteriosus open, like you said, and this is a common board question is how to do that. And like mm-hmm. you said, prostaglandins. I don't. I, do you remember the exact one you guys use? It's it, PGE two. It's uh, you know so great yeah. PGE two. Yeah. I think that even may yeah. they may get that specific on these questions. So prostaglandin E two is going to keep it open, and then that blood, some of it is going to go to the lungs, but some of it is going to go through the PDA over to the aorta, and now can go to the whole body. So essentially, keeping that open allows the right ventricle to pump blood to both the lungs and the body. And like you were saying, and I think one of one of your main jobs is to help regulate the resistance because that's how you're going to decide how much goes to the body and how much goes to the lungs. Yes. And so how do you do that? How do you um, control that? So once again, this, these are concepts that are, uh, you know, across all fields, which is great, but uh, they're kind of focused more on the pediatric field and certainly on the pediatric cardiac field. But it's the balance between systemic vascular resistance and pulmonary vascular resistance. And I think in general, uh, these are topics that people are relatively comfortable with, um, no matter what they do. But in pulmonary vascular resistance, we are affecting oxygenation. It's the most powerful pulmonary vasodilator we have. In terms of constriction, we're talking about CO2. Uh, in terms of systemic vascular resistance, we're just going to either vasodilate or vasoconstrict. And all those things that come together will balance, uh, uh, will balance your blood flow out. We obviously are looking at the overall oxygenation because, as you said, if you're not getting any flow systemically, you're just going to have 100% sats. The more and more you are balanced, the more and more you're going to have a sat around in the low 80s because you have 100% coming from your lungs and the extraction is going to be 30, 35%. So you have things that are coming around 60, 65% from your body and therefore your oxygenation sats uh, systemically will be in the low 80s if you're in a perfect one-to-one QP to QS. And what I mean by that is flow to the lung versus flow to the systemic um, 
in terms of blood flow. And so is that what you're shooting for? Sats in the 80s, low you, 80s? You really want things to be into the low to mid 80s. Uh, that is really uh, giving your heart uh, the least amount of work that it has to do. And so this is this is really now we're hitting on where this is completely yeah. different, yes. right? I mean, a sat in the low 80s for an adult in the absence of some kind of congenital heart disease is an emergency of a mm-hmm. pro- pro- major problem emergency. And that's what you're shooting for. So that's very interesting. And then... Uh, let's talk about where you're measuring that. So, you know, we often um, you hear about preductal, postductal SATs. Um, are you doing that, and what does that mean? Well, uh, pre and pre and postductal SAT is one assuming that you have a duct that's working. And so, uh, when you have a preductal SAT in a let's say a patient that was just born, mm-hmm. uh, you're talking about the saturation of the blood flow. Uh, purely ejecting right out of the RV because uh, the uh, duct is usually closer to your left subclavian. It can be in very, it can be before your left subclavian, after your left subclavian, but the blood flow going to your right subclavian is all going to be ejected from your um, LV through your aorta. So it's it's just that LV saturation, and it's all the oxygenation that's coming from the lungs going into your LA. So that is kind of isolated uh, oxygenation there. But when you have an open PDA, once again, you could have shunting going in multiple different directions. So uh, if you have a post-ductal sat that is lower than your pre-ductal sat, what you can assume then is that there's some flow that's coming from your RV out to your systemic system and causing mixing at that location and desaturating. Now, if you have mixing that's occurring in intracardiac, so in a hypoplastic left heart, your mixing is really uh, you know occurring at the RR. In other congenital lesions, many of them are occurring intracardiac, meaning at the level of the atrium. Uh, and in that case, it doesn't matter where you are checking because the mixing is occurring there. Right, uh, your saturations are going to be the same regardless where you check it. Right, but that's what we mean by pre and postdoctoral. Great. So, do you put a um, oxygen sat monitor on the right hand and the left hand? Is that how you figure this out? Usually, uh, because the subclavian can be a little variable place, I usually put on the toe because then I know for certain yep. that it's uh, Post. truly postdoctoral. Gotcha. Uh, but yes, in in essence. Yes. Okay, so you've got a right finger sat for your preductal mm-hmm. and like you said any blood that is being pumped out of the left ventricle um is going to go there before any mixing from a pda from a pda yes. so that is why it's your preductal sat it means it's before any effect from a pda and like you said if there's no pda then this is not an issue and then if you have one on like you said the most the most uh, definite way would be to have it on the foot or the toe and then you know that's after any mixture from a PDA. So if there is blood uh, coming from the right heart up through the up to the pulmonary artery, it's going to be deoxygenated because it hasn't made it to the lungs yet. Going over through the PDA into the aorta and then down to the foot, that would be low. So if you have a PDA, presumably your preductal sat in your right hand is going to be higher than your toe sat because it's getting deoxygenated blood mixed in through the pda going to the foot it's going to be lower exactly and i think and just to make it all make sense the time where you see this the most is when you have a baby that is just being born and when we talk about the transitions uh um, from fetal life because you take a breath your oxygen tension then comes in your pvr falls and then what's supposed to happen is that PDA is supposed to close, right. and now all blood flow is supposed to go through the lungs. There are certain processes that happen, and this is not truly associated with congenital heart disease, but uh, certain things with severe uh, pulmonary hypertension, meconium aspiration, other pediatric-focused diseases that, will, that, that occur at birth uh, that will delay that process from occurring. And uh, that's the way to see how severe it is because uh, it'll, it'll tell you how, how much blood flow is actually going um, into your lungs versus going the, uh, through your PDA. Great. All right. So let's go back to something you said, which is that the main ways you control the pulmonary vascular resistance are 
regulating oxygen and CO2, oxygen being a pulmonary vasodilator and CO2 being a pulmonary vasoconstrictor. So this is really interesting because in adults, we really only do the other side, which you also do, which is, for example, maybe giving some phenylephrine to increase systemic vascular resistance or maybe giving some nitroprusside, nitroglycerin, nicardipine to decrease systemic vascular resistance. You guys do that too, and we'll get to the specific agents you use in a minute, but you also then have this other side you're regulating. We maybe do that a little with an adult with pulmonary hypertension where we maybe, you know, we try to keep them from being hypoxic or hypercarbic, but you're doing it, I think, much more actively. So tell me a little about that. How are you actively managing pulmonary vascular resistance in these kids? Well, we will generally keep them on room air as as best as we can mm-hmm. uh, because in a hypoplastic left heart patient, uh, it's really systemic blood flow that you want. So any increase in pulmonary blood flow, you're stealing from systemic blood flow and you're making the heart have to work even harder. Mm-hmm. That's already doing two ventricles worth of work. Right. So uh, we try to keep as room air as possible. There uh, back in the day, there was uh, the use of um, uh, less than 21% uh, uh, oxygenation, which we actually don't do anymore, and I can explain that. In, 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 our most places don't do that anymore, and I can explain the thought process behind that in just a second. Sure. And then uh, we actively, actively, aggressively try to uh, change CO2 and uh, try to balance the uh, acidosis that you occur that can obviously have an impact on heart function with the PVR that increases to improve systemic blood flow. And uh, by using CO2 instead of, um, uh, you know, less uh, FiO2, uh, it improves. uh, There were studies that showed that it actually improves mixed venous, uh, which obviously is a a sign of... um, uh, you know, it's an oxygen extraction sign, but the, if you're extracting too much, it's a sign that your heart's actually struggling. So it balances that uh, approach and actually improves uh, lactate levels, so improves how we uh, evaluate oxygen delivery. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it seems to me like if you have a choice of either decreasing the oxygen you're putting in, which might cause more blood to go systemically, but that blood's going to have less oxygen in it, or you can use CO2 while while still having a reasonable amount of oxygen, better to use the CO2. That's the, that's the argument. Yes. Okay. And it sounds like the data would back that up. Um, so to use CO2, do you just do what we do in adults, which is if, we, if I want the CO2 to go up, I just decrease the respiratory rate or tidal volume? Um, or do you actively inject or have the perfusionist actively inject CO2? <laughs> so th- things can get kind of tricky. Uh, and, you know, remember that the, the – the places where these children are, are taken care of first is in the ICU for, for three days. So as their the PVR, that's the acute process where PVR drops and the most optimal timing for uh, surgery. So oftentimes some of those decisions have been made for us, meaning mm-hmm. that they're already going to be intubated. They're already going to have their respiratory rate controlled. Uh, and so, you know, when they are in the ICU and are well taken care of and are coming to us with as optimized as possible really makes my job uh, a lot easier and what I would prefer to do for myself when I'm in the ICU. Uh, so, um, but in the operating room, we will, tr- we will, much of what we do will we just translate from there. We'll mm-hmm. just do very similar things. We can bleed in CO2. It is uh, something uh, that uh, is possible and feasible. Uh, I've only done it a handful of times. I've only needed to do it a handful of times. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is something that we will do. Most of the time I feel that if we control the situation, what I mean by that is you intubate them. You uh, paralyze the patient so that you can control the breathing, and you gently uh, increase the CO2 uh, to optimize uh, PVR. That is usually enough for the majority of these patients um, uh, to control their QP to QS uh, balance. Great. So let me ask you, um, since we talked about hypoplastic left heart kids, just, you know, again, let's maybe just give me an overview of the surgeries. I believe they have a, a series of surgeries. Mm-hmm. Um, just tell me what they are and, you know, kind of what, what's being done uh, as a general overview. So uh, the 
initial the initial surgery that, that for a hypoplastic left heart is a Norwood procedure. Okay. Uh, generally, Norwood uh, BT shunt, Norwood Sano. Some patients do also this hybrid procedure, but we'll talk about the things that are the most common, which is a, a Norwood procedure. And uh, what they do there is they essentially create a neo aorta out of um, some portions of your pulmonary artery and uh, a graft uh, to make a whole new arch and aortic system and a new coronary systems at, at times. Uh, so your uh, so now your blood flow is going out in the order that, that the surgeon created. And then now you can imagine, well, now something has to be done with uh, pulmonary blood flow. Right. Uh, so it's much easier to balance uh, blood flow when the problem is lack of pulmonary blood flow, as we kind of discussed before, than when it's a lack of systemic blood flow. Right. So the two general options people do is something called the BT shunt, uh, modified BT shunt, which is, you know, uh, a connection between your subclavian and your uh, right-sided PA. Uh, in general. Mm-hmm. And then the other option is a Sano shunt, which is an RV to PA conduit and is another type of uh, essentially Gore-Tex that is connecting your RV uh, to your PA. Okay. So basically what, what we've done is created a way for the blood to get systemic with this neo-aorta because without that you can't live. And then added a shunt so that some of that blood can get to the lungs. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And now you'd mentioned before, but important to point out, uh, obviously this blood has to mix in the heart since there's only one outflow from the heart. And so uh, these kids have to either be born with an ASD or VSD or have one created, right? Yeah. ASD generally is a better, um, is where blood is going to actually mix uh, because the uh, there pressures much in diastole yeah. and systole are going to be alternating. So then you can, you get essentially a mix back and forth of those of that gotcha. blood flow. Yeah. And there isn't much of an LV anyway. Exactly. So, yeah. so it's not going to go anywhere. Right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, they have to have an ASD. They're probably all born with an ASD yep. or yeah. if not, they, or it has to be created. It's created. Yeah. Okay. So the blood mixes in the heart. It all goes out. What now is the neo aorta. Some of it is going to go through the shunt to the lungs and the rest of it goes to the body. All right. So that's step one. What's When do they come back? Oh, that's done when? Three days of life? So that, that's done usually three to five days of life. Okay. Yeah. So then when do they come back? So then in terms of coming back, now th- th- what's important here is that now with it, regardless of whether they're hypoplastic or not, any single ventricle patient, so any oh. patient that we feel uh, for whatever reason is not going to be able to have a right and left ventricle will go down this path of some sort. So the second surgery is something called the Glenn uh, and the Glenn procedure. And uh, there's numerous uh, perturbations of the Glenn procedure, but as a whole, it is bringing the SVC, so um, your all blood going from uh, the top of your body and connecting that to your uh, pulmonary artery. So then you actually have disconnected your pulmonary blood flow from your systemic blood flow. So uh, your pulmonary blood flow is all coming from your head. Your systemic blood flow is still mixed in that you still have venous blood coming from your lower part of your body, mm-hmm. mixing with the blood coming from your upper part of your body. And so now you can imagine that your right heart was having to do two ventricles worth of work before. Now it's having to do something less than that. One and a half, whatever you want to say. Yeah. Okay, great. So we've taken, so now all the blood from the upper part of the body is draining straight into the lungs, essentially, to the PA and then to the lungs. Then goes from the lungs back to the heart, but it's now oxygenated. oxygenated. And then the bottom half of the body from the IVC still goes into the right heart, deoxygenated. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's step two, and then what's and that's done when? Yeah, sorry, that's done uh, between three to six months. Okay, yeah. so they're a little bigger, yes. probably a little easier to operate on at that mm-hmm. point, and then they come back for step three at some point. Yes, and that's usually done three to five years okay. of age, and that is called a Fontan procedure. And once again, there's numerous perturbations of the Fontan procedure. Uh, but as a whole, it is then bringing the lower part of blood flow and connecting that now to your pulmonary artery, making all pulmonary blood flow a passive blood flow process. And then now 
allowing your right ventricle or in other situations, your other single ventricle being your systemic ventricle and ejecting blood out to the rest of your body. So it is now, in general, now when we talked about parallel and series circulation, a Fontan that has no other holes in it is a in-series system, meaning there's no way for it to go in other directions. It has to go A, B, C, to D. Right. And the interesting thing about this is that you now have your pulmonary blood flow, since there's no right ventricle pushing blood to the lungs, it's just a totally passive system, yes. right? So it's completely dependent on pulmonary vascular resistance as to how much blood actually you know, is able to flow. Yes. And so these are patients, when they come back now, um, later in life, right, for any kind of surgery, be it an appy or whatever, who you have to be very, very careful because if their PV, if their pulmonary vascular resistance goes up, uh, they may have get into big problems very quickly. Yeah, th- and those patients are are uh, can be very complicated, and uh, it would be a whole nother webcast. <laughs> yes, yes, and we're not right. We definitely won't yeah. get into all that, but that let's at least say if I have that patient show up on my schedule, I'm calling you. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So. Uh, good. And then the um, other thing I wanted to ask you about is bypass. So there's a pretty standard for adults having cardiothoracic surgery, pul- uh, cardiopulmonary bypass. Um, there's obviously a little, slightly different ways it can be initiated, but, you know, in general, it's the same. Is it similar for kids or is it different? Uh, and how, how is it different if it's different? Unfortunately, it is very different in children. And it, there's also so many institutional variabilities and practice patterns. Uh, and so it, it also, uh, you know, actually makes it pretty difficult to study the different practice patterns because, you know, or really even study the field as a whole because people do things so differently. Uh, so it is, it, you know, and so to talk about some of those differences, uh, one, there's so much variability in age and disease processes that, uh, the act of going on bypass for some kids is very different than uh, for others. Uh, so, um, uh, for instance, we'll talk about, you know, in adult cardiac as a whole, uh, oftentimes if we're looking at the cabbage as our standard procedure, mm-hmm. the, the cabbage um, is uh, something external to the heart, and so rarely do you need to decompress the heart fully uh, to allow for an adequate repair. But almost all of pediatric cardiac surgery is uh, intracardiac and repairs that need to occur with the heart um, uh, stopped. And mm-hmm. so that's one of the big differences just between adults and uh, pediatrics. But then the way people do that, uh, well, the way people stop the heart, their focus is when they stop the heart, what uh, and how they want to uh, keep blood flow going to the brain and other parts of the body when they do stop the heart uh, is, you know, uh, from institution to institution can be 180 degrees apart. Okay. Um, and like, like I said, it's been very difficult. No, no specific way, uh, in terms of doing that has been proven to be, uh, uh, better than any other. Okay. And so that's why there is such variability. Is it, do some patients uh, end up getting cannulated peripherally and other centrally, or is it all central? So generally, it is all centrally, but uh, some patients, they'll do uh, something called um, uh, anti-grade cerebral uh, uh, perfusion, which mm-hmm. is that they'll, uh, of some form, uh, cannulate uh, one of the neck vessels, so whether it be the brachiosphalic, being able to go to the carotid during uh, periods of circa rest, which means that the heart is completely stopped, blood is removed from the body, and you just have blood going to the brain. So the integrated cerebral perfusion is just blood going up the carotid, across the brain, coming back down, and then being drained. So right. you're only perfusing the brain. Some places believe in that. Some places don't. They go circa rest, and they give you a time period that you're going to have, and then you best be done by that time because you have an increased risk of neurologic injury afterwards. So there is a lot of variability in uh, in terms of uh, maybe not necessarily how you go on bypass, but how you perform uh, bypass from institution to institution. Okay. That's really interesting. Uh, uh, Presumably these kids are all cooled. 
Uh, generally, we so anything done intracardiac as a whole, if you're going to do cardioplegia, will be cool to some temperature, sometimes 32 if it's going to be a quick procedure, sometimes 28 mm-hmm. if it's going to be a moderate procedure. And then if you're going to do any form of circa rest time of any sort or if you're going to stop blood flow to the body um, in any form, generally uh, we will go down to uh, 18, 19 degrees. Okay, great. Um, so are there, are there certain complications, uh, that are kind of, they come up frequently or that you think about, uh, in, in your cases on, in general? And I'm, I'm curious because I'd say by far the most common complication, so to speak, in adults would be hypotension. And the most common thing we do about that is give a little phenylephrine or give a little ephedrine. I would, I could imagine situations with your patients where that may not be the right move uh, to treat hypotension. Um, because that will also increase pulmonary vascular resistance, and maybe they're not someone who can tolerate that. Um, or maybe it'll increase systemic vascular resistance too much, and you'll get more blood flow to the lungs, and they can't tolerate that. So, you know, are there th- – well, let me start with hypotension. Do you treat hypotension differently than we do, and how do you think about it? Yeah, you know, so I want to be careful here because uh, there's opinion and then there's uh, stuff based on fact. And much of what I'm going to talk about, if not all of what I'm going to talk about, is really based on opinion. Okay. uh, Because there's very little data that supports any sort of uh, use of uh, of one presser over another in any pediatric population. Sure. Uh, So in saying that, then, how I tend to uh, run my uh, decision making is by physiology because that's that's then um, if I don't have any data then at least I'm going to have some thought uh, behind what I'm going to do. Yeah. So then what comes uh, you know with the next uh, part of it is is understanding the physiology of the patient because as you said you know if a patient has severe pulmonary hypertension then you know like you said phenylephrine, epi, many of those drugs. Uh, can alter uh, uh, pulmonary vascular resistance and do we consider vasopressin or other drugs like that that might have less of an impact on mm-hmm. it, would those be a drug that you could use? And so uh, there are times where I'll, where I'll use that, where I'll do uh, use vasopressin as an infusion or other sorts because of my concern of pulmonary hypertension yep. in that setting. Uh, there are also situations where I know um, with a neonate coming off of uh, bypass that they're uh, cardiac sarcoplasmic reticulum is, to simply say, calcium dependent, meaning that you just need a, a higher concentration of calcium mm-hmm. uh, than you would for a non-neonate for it to get the same effect. And so there are times where I'll use calcium as an infusion mm-hmm. um, to try to optimize that that um, uh, cardiac output. Uh, but as a whole, then, then it's not that dissimilar than um, in the adult population mm-hmm. where, you know, cardiac outputs uh, are, are if you're, we're, what we're really treating is low blood pressure. Low blood pressure is a simple equation, and that's for everybody. Right. It's cardiac output times SVR. And right. so which one do I think is the problem here? Uh, and then that's what I'm going to fix. And that's the benefit of having an echo is if I can say that the cardiac output, the volume status, everything else is okay, then all I need an SVR drug. If I'm saying, wow, that right heart doesn't look so good right now, then I'm going to disregard some of the other components. Pulmonary, I'm going to give that patient um, epi uh, right. uh, more often than not. Great. All right. So what about hypoxemia? Because that's definitely different. We've already heard that you're shooting for low 80s in some of these kids, which is clearly different. Um, If you fall below that, uh, you know, options, certainly if an adult gets hypoxic, we're going to give them more oxygen. That may not be your approach, right? So uh, you may actually uh, deal with systemic or pulmonary vascular resistance as a way to affect your SATs, not with the the concentration of oxygen you're giving. Is that right? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, it's it's (laughs) the... The most common cause, and when I was always a, a resident, or especially when I was in the PICU, you, your response of hypoxia is always to turn up oxygen. But I remember an attending telling me, did we just move to Everest? You know, because, right. you know, did, did, did all of a sudden the lack of oxygen causes hypoxia. Right. And so the obviously you want to do something that's going to fix something acutely. But in any situation, I think it's important to realize that if you're hypoxic, it isn't because you lack 
oxygen. It is some other issue. Right. Uh, it just becomes a little bit more pertinent for us uh, right. because there are severe consequences, much more severe than just uh, you know some ox- potential oxygen toxicity. Right. As, so as we discussed, if we modify the oxygen on there, we could really be causing a lot of systemic issues in a number of these patients. So uh, because the consequences are so high, we truly have to evaluate what we think the causative effect is. And that's where you have to make very quick uh, decisions. You have to look at all the data you have, and it's much like when you get a, you know, uh, uh, you're sitting for your oral boards and someone's asking you a question, you have to go through that systematic approach where you're looking at your uh, end tidal CO2, you're potentially asking yourself what you're, what, you know, to get a gas to be able to, uh, to evaluate whether you're overventilating or underventilating. You have to look at your systemic perfusion. You have to look at your pre and post ductal gases, depending on what type of, um, uh, what type of perfusion is occurring in that situation. So, you know, there's su- such a variety number of cases, but you, and that's why it's important to understand what the case is, what you're doing, what you're repairing, what the patient is going to do afterward, and what to expect afterwards. That way you're not having to think through this. It becomes much more natural to you. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Great. So really quickly, and I don't want to go into details here because um, there's another. we've done another episode on this, but you're managing uh, the acid-based status of your patient. Are you using pH stat or alpha stat? So uh, in children... Uh, I think the data is relatively clear that pH stat is beneficial, and we think that it's beneficial because of improved cerebral blood flow that might improve aspects of neurologic outcomes Mm -hmm. and and other things like that. So uh, I would say that most cardiac anesthesiologists, most cardiac programs would agree that in children, pH stat is better, and that's what we use. Um, at many children's institutions, because they also do adult congenital, will do pH stat for all their patients. for all their patients, and it's more to be have a consistent approach. And with generally there being minimal, uh, likely minimal um, outcome concerns in patients uh, in congenital cardiac patients, even adults because they're younger and have less concern for stroke and other risks. Um, uh, that's usually the approach that most people take. Okay. And I'll just say to listeners that uh, I did a whole episode on pH stat versus alpha stat. That's episode 20. You can find that at com if you want to check that out. All right. So, Diraj, when you're thinking about um, kind of the basics, induction, maintenance of anesthesia, paralysis, are you doing anything drastically different in these kids, or, or is that pretty much the same? So compared to adults, uh, it's, it's, it can be different. Uh, now... One, you know, peds is always pediatrics is always going to be a little bit different than adults because their reserve is so much lower. Mm-hmm. Their FRC is, um, uh, you know, lower than the closing capacity. So oftentimes, right away, once you start induction, they're going to start desaturating quickly. So because their FRC uh, is lower than the closing capacity, and now they are desaturating, you now have a patient who. Uh, has a very delicate balance between systemic and uh, pulmonary perfusion uh, based on the things that we've just discussed before, and then a heart that's having to do two ventricles uh, worth of work. So any further stress you put on that heart uh, uh, could uh, potentially cause a very quick and significant decline, even leading to an arrest. So it does raise the pressure and the intensity of the situation uh, significantly. So the way we kind of approach that, there are, once again, some variable uh, um, thought processes. I would say the majority of cardiac anesthesiologists would put on some amount of oxygen in that situation. Mm -hmm. With the understanding that you are putting a stress to the situation, but you're allowing your fellow, your secondary provider, resident, whoever it might be, a little bit more time uh, to allow for intubation. Uh, So from that perspective, uh, it is a much, I think, uh, probably one of the more intense situations, Mm -hmm. uh, especially with someone like a neonatal case, where, as I said, you know, it's even more delicate than uh, uh, an infant or a toddler. Uh, But... um, 
in that situation, it can be it can be pretty pretty scary sometimes. Yeah, so. I mean, I remember even healthy neonates desatting very very quickly back when I was a resident doing pediatrics, and so I can't imagine with congenital kids, uh, you know, at three days of age. And then I think you know, in terms of drugs, like you said, in terms of induction things, induction medications. We'll use very similar medications that you've used in sick patients in any other sick patient, meaning that the hope would be that you uh, cause homeostasis. You don't want things to go too high. You want things to go too low. You would be very happy if they're sitting exactly where they were when they came in. And so your, you know, your goals of medications can be an opioid base. It could be ketamine. It could be atomidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but understanding the risks and benefits of all the drugs. Um, and then continuing to move forward. Yeah. Do you avoid succinylcholine? In in neonates, I think it makes no difference. So as a whole, uh, you know, the black box label for succinylcholine came uh, primarily because there were some kids that had Duchenne's that you didn't know and you gave sucks to, and then uh, they are maybe not just Duchenne's, other medicate other diseases as well, and they had a hyperkalemic arrest. Right. So as a whole. Uh, I will use succinylcholine in children when it is the most appropriate drug to use. Mm -hmm. In this situation, uh, I don't usually use succinylcholine because I don't think that there's that much of a benefit uh, because I'm going to be ventilating them. They shouldn't have a full belly. So I should be able to do this in a controlled, even fashion. And so I don't feel like I need to use sucks here. But I would if it... So for instance, though, if all of a sudden... We were trying to mass ventilate after induction, and the process wasn't working, or there was another problem. I would give sucks without any doubt, any question in my mind. Okay, great. Um, well, we've covered a lot of great stuff. Uh, anything you think we've left out that we should? Do you want to comment on? No, I don't think so. Just once again, I want to thank you for for uh, having me here. I hope uh, this was a little helpful for everybody. It's a complicated, complicated subject, uh, but. Um, it's, I think there are some things that you can learn from these patients uh, that you can take to any situation uh, that uh, you're in. Yeah, great. Well, thank you for coming on the show, Diraj. And certainly, uh, if people out there have questions, want to know more about pediatric cardiothoracic anesthesia, post comments on the site. We can get Diraj's comments uh, on them as well, and everybody can learn uh, from people's comments. So go to ACRAC.com and check it out. Uh, Diraj, thanks again. Oh, thank you. All right, that was fantastic. As I said, check out the website, ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com. Leave a comment. You can, of course, always get a hold of me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. And if you are a fan of the show, consider going to iTunes, leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show when they are searching for an anesthesia-related podcast. Also, if you're interested in helping support the making of the show, please check out patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. It makes a big difference, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. really helps, and we are greatly appreciative. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Diraj Goswami, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.